Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Joel chapter 2. We're working through the minor prophets. We we looked at Obadiah two weeks ago, looked at the first chapter of Joel last week, and today we've come to Joel chapter 2. The minor prophets are in the, the latter portion of your Old Testament, so after you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, you'll find Hosea and then Joel. When we look through these prophets, there should be a sense of reverence and awe for our God and His demand for holiness. I hope you've seen that so far in our study. But what we should not do if we are believers, and I hope we all are here, that we should not fear that God is going to bring eternal judgment on us. And that kind of can happen when we look at such a severe uh, statement as we've been looking at these last couple weeks. And even tonight we'll see how severe God's judgment is on the people who are opposed to Him. But if you are a believer, you should not fear. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, all the wrath that God had for you has been paid for. That's what we talked about this morning, that, that Jesus Christ already took that upon Himself. You don't have to fear judgment anymore. You don't have to fear God's wrath because Christ has already taken that upon Himself. So when we go through these, I want you to keep in mind that this eternal judgment that, that is being talked about is the judgment that will come on those who do not believe, on those who are not in Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we've been memorizing this as a church. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we could ask Paul there in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, how is it that we have peace with God? Paul answers it in two ways. He says you have it by being justified by faith, and then the end of the verse says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what would it be like if we were not justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul? Paul would say, well, you would not have peace with God. You would fear judgment just like these people in in Israel should fear. What is the opposite of peace with God? It is turmoil or enmity that we are His enemies. But, But Paul says, don't fear Because if you have been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ, then you can be guaranteed that you will and do have peace with God. No condemnation, now we dread. We sing about it often. And we even sung about it this evening. We even sang about it this evening in the third verse. We said, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. Now how could sin be blissful? How could we be happy about our sin? Well, the writer of the song tells us. Because it is taken not in part, but the whole, all of our sin, and it was nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. Okay, so we need to keep that in mind as we go through this, this, these prophets. That, that you will see lots of, of times where the prophet says, turn to God or God will bring judgment on you. He's not talking necessarily to believers saying you need, to re- you need to ask for forgiveness of your sin even though you've already been saved because God's going to bring wrath upon you. No. 
as believers, we, we face no wrath. Remember, we have been justified. That means we've been declared righteous. We talked about that, in our, or we sang about that in one of our earlier songs. We said that we were clothed with Christ's righteousness. And so, my point is that as we look through these prophets, that although there, there are some terrifying prophecies about what God will do to those who oppose Him, we should not beat ourselves up and hope that God doesn't do that to us. We can be confident that He will not because we have been justified by faith. So why go through these prophets? If there's, such, there's so much talk about doom and gloom, why, why go through them at all? Well, I would suggest that we're doing it in order to give us hope that one day all the wrongs in this sin-cursed world that have been done to us will be made right. Have you ever experienced injustice in your lifetime? Maybe in the last week? Some sort of injustice done to you? Certainly we all have. Those wrongs will be made right one day when God judges all those who are opposed to Him and He lifts up those who are His children so that all the persecution that you endure will now be replaced with future glory. All the turmoil and the frustration will be replaced with final and unending peace. All the heartache will be replaced with joy. All the suffering and the crying will be replaced with laughter. And we can be confident in that because God is faithful and God is true to His promises. So with that in mind, let's read Joel chapter 2. We'll read the first 17 verses and then we'll look at what God has for us this evening. The prophet Joel writes, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb walls like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path when they burst through the defenses. They do not break their ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, 
and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the peoples say, Where is their God? Tonight we're going to see from this chapter in Joel that because God's wrath will be poured out in judgment in the day of the Lord which is to come, unbelievers must turn from their sin in order to experience the blessings that God has promised. The first thing that we want to look at is these first 17 verses. And we see in these 17 verses the paradise that was lost. And what Joel is referring to primarily is the future day of the Lord. Now what is he, he's doing is, as we looked at last week, he's using the illustration of the locust outbreak that took place in chapter 1. And he talked about all these locusts that came in and they devastated the, their, their crops, all their vines. They had nothing to eat. Uh, they had nothing to offer for sacrifices. They were destitute. And uh, following that was, was a drought. And so these people were crying out to God. And now Joel takes that illustration that he used in chapter 1 of a locust outbreak and he says this is what it's going to be like in the day of the Lord. It's going to be much worse than that locust outbreak. You're going to have an army of the Lord come upon those who oppose God and it's going to destroy them just as the locust, locust did. But it will be an army of people, an army of God. And so the first thing that we see here is the call for action in verses 1 and 2. He says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy, on my holy mountain. In ancient times, the trumpet was used to gather people for special occasions or to warn them for danger, similar to how some of our troops use trumpets in the time of war to, to warn against impending attack. And Joel writes that there is going to be, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom. This is similar to what they would have experienced when all these locusts came. Remember, some of these locust swarms could be up to uh, thousands of square miles and contain trillions of locusts in one locust swarm. And so we can understand how it could blacken the night sky or blacken the, the sky of the day, take away the sun. And God says, in the day of the Lord, that is, at, during the time of the tribulation, when God brings His judgment on, his, on the people who are opposed to Him, the sky will be darkened. The darkness that spreads is, is a symbol of God's judgment. You remember when Jesus was on the cross in Mark chapter 15? He, he, was, he had God turn His back on Him from the sixth hour till the ninth hour. And what happened during that time? 
that the entire sky was darkened even though it was the middle of the day. And that was a sign of God's judgment on His Son. And the same thing is true here. The darkness is a sign of judgment. In that final day, there will be judgment. The second part of verse 2 says, As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There have never been anything. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Instead of the dawn bringing light like we'd expect, the dawn here in the day of the Lord during God's judgment will bring darkness. It will bring more judgment. It will be un, uh, unprecedented. It would be judgment that is unlike anything they had ever seen. Similar to the locust swarm. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 2. During that time, this locust swarm was unprecedented in that God had never judged His own people, Israel, in this way. He had judged Egypt when when Egypt was holding Israel captivity. But look at chapter 1, verse 2. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like like this happened in your days or in your father's day. Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. Joel was saying on behalf of God that this judgment of locusts was unlike anything that had ever happened. And because of it, your sons would tell future sons. And he's saying, now in chapter 2, he's saying this future day of the Lord, there will never be anything like it again. It will be unprecedented to the point where God will use His armies to judge the people who are opposed to Him and He will redeem Israel and all those who are called His children. We see the illustration of the locusts in verses 3-10. through I want you to notice several things about this army of locusts that that Joel is using as an illustration of the future day of the Lord, the future judgment of God. Verse 3 tells us that this locust swarm is an unswerving uh, army that has great power. The unswerving power of this army. Verse 3, A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. You see the imagery there? The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. This beautiful, well-nurtured garden. And then what's it like behind them? Once the swarm comes through, what happens? It's a desolate wilderness because they just tear it apart. The same thing will happen in a greater way when God comes upon those people who are opposed to Him during the time of the tribulation God will come through and although it will look like great and prosperous group of people in front of Him, behind Him and His army will be a desolate wilderness. And it's something that cannot be stopped. Something that, that will not... doesn't matter how many people stand up to God. We'll see this next week uh, in chapter 3 that they're all going to come to the valley of Jehoshaphat and there in the Valley of Decision, God will enact His judgment upon these people. And it doesn't matter how many people are there, God is greater than them all. And He will destroy them for not having turned to Him. Verse 4 tells us about the strength of the army. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run. 
If you look at closely at the head of a locust, it's very similar to the head of a horse. But it's not just their appearance that Joel is trying to make the the similarity, the comparison. He's trying to show the the strength of these animals and by correlation or by by illustration the strength of God and His army that will come on these people. Because look at the last part of the verse. It says, and like war horses, so they run. The point is, is that they they have so much power and strength. The, the horse for the people of Israel was a symbol of strength, of power, of might. And, and the same thing is true about uh, these locusts and by illustration, the army of God. The sound of the army we see in verse 5. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Every child knows the sound of a grasshopper jumping about in the grass. Take that sound and multiply it by millions. And Joel is saying, imagine what that would be like if this locust swarm came to you. You could hear it off in the distance. This loud buzzing noise and then it would soon come upon you and the sound would be overwhelming. And God is saying, during my time of judgment, at the beginning of the day of the Lord, the tribulation, I am going to bring the sound of my army. You're going to hear it for miles and the fact that such noise is made by these locusts shows that Joel's description is the appearance of, of a divine army. He says at the end, like a mighty people arranged for battle. And then verse 6, I want you to notice the fear that the army brings. Before them, the people are in anguish. All their faces turn pale. They are afraid, and rightfully so, both of the locusts and as, as uh, will take place in the, the end times, God's judgment on them. Verses 7-9 through nine talk about the thoroughness of this army, this army of judgment. Verse 7, They run like mighty men, they climb the walls like soldiers, and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. You can imagine how locusts could basically take up all of the area that they want to. They can, they can fill in any little cracks they need to. They can enter the houses through the windows. And God says, on that day of judgment, I am going to send my army on these people who oppose me and they're going to get in everywhere. There's no hiding. My army is going to be thorough in its judgment. And that's because God is a holy God and God demands that that sin be paid for. In verse 11, we see the dreadfulness. I'm sorry, we skipped verse 10. Verse 10, we see the relentlessness of the army. The unceasing nature of this army. Verse 10, Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Now this is interesting because locusts typically become inactive at night. So if you had a locust outbreak, you could look forward to the time in the evening when they would go dormant for, for, the, for the, uh, the duration of the evening. But God says, no, my army will not be like locusts in that way. 
they will cloud and, and they will cover the sky so that you will not be able to see the stars and the moon. Their judgment will be so severe that they will not take a break. And so God is showing us through His prophet Joel that this army is unceasing. Verse 11 shows us the dreadfulness of the day of the Lord. And this, I think, shows us, explains to us what Joel has been talking about these last ten verses. He's talking about the day of the Lord. Look at verse 11. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Who can endure it? What do you think the implied answer is there? After seeing how relentless this army is, how great it is, how vast it is, who can endure this day of the Lord? Who can? The implied answer? No one can. No one can stand up against God and His army. When God comes in judgment, it is final. It is sure. It will take place. So, we see the, the nature of the, the army that God sends to destroy those who are against Him. Now, verses 12-17, through 17, we see the demand of the day of the Lord. Okay? With this in mind, this is what God says is going to happen, that He will come during those seven years of tribulation. He will come in judgment on those who oppose Him. It is sure... It will happen. So, how should we respond to this? Joel tells us in verses 12 through 17. This is how we should respond. Verse 12, verses 12 through 14, he tells us that we ought to repent of our sins. Verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The demand here by God Himself is to repent. God is reminding His people that it's not too late. The day of the Lord has not come. The locust outbreak has come, but the day of the Lord has not come. They were expecting it to be fairly soon for them. But Joel is saying it's not too late. Turn to God now. If you have not repented of your sin, if you are not in a right relationship with God, it's not too late. And we find the same theme throughout the rest of Scripture, don't we? We find in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus goes about preaching the message of repent and believe in the gospel in the in the kingdom of God. The the writers of the epistles Paul in particular says now is the day of salvation. Now is the the accepted time. Don't wait. You see what God is going to do. I've told you, Joel is saying. Now here's your response. Repent of your sin. Have you done that? Have you done that? Is that something that you have done? Has there been a time in your life when you have recognized that your works cannot save you? That no amount of good can make you stand righteously before God? Nothing that you do. 
Only Christ can save you. Only Christ's righteousness applied to your account is satisfactory uh, is satisfactory enough to meet God's demand, to satisfy God's wrath. This is the most um, base form of God's wrath that we will see. We will see in the scriptures. It is that God hates sin and He will judge it. So if you have not turned from your sin, it's not too late. Call on Him now. He says in verse. 13, rend your heart and not your garments. We saw this, uh, we looked at this quickly last week. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. The point here is Joel saying, it's not enough to just go through the rituals and say, oh, I'm going to rend my garments. See, in that day they would tear their clothes. You've often heard that they would, they would tear their clothes and beat their chests. Joel says, that's not enough. It's not enough to just go through the motions. You have to do it in your heart. That's why he says, rend your heart, not your garments. Not enough to just go through the motions. You need to you need to believe this in your heart that only God can save you. And when you do, you will find forgiveness of sin because the second verse part of verse 13 says, "For he, God, is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting." Of evil. Verses 13 and 14 show us that we need to remember God's grace. It is ultimately God who determines whom He will forgive. But that is why in verse 14, Joel says, Who knows whether He will not turn and relent? He's not presuming upon God. He's not saying, If I go through this ritual, then God has to save me. God saves whom He pleases. But thankfully, we do not serve a God who is quick to anger and very weak in loving kindness. But instead, we, we serve a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. Thankfully, we don't serve a God who is, who is quick to become angry or else who could stand against Him? Who would not have already paid for their sins by now if God were not slow to anger and abounding in love. But we can stand because God is slow to anger and He has given given us an opportunity to turn to Him. And He's given those people around you, those unbelieving people around you, an opportunity to turn to Him. It's not too late. If the people... Joel is saying, would genuinely repent, the Lord was ready to forgive. We have promises all throughout Scripture that talk about God's willingness to forgive if people will just recognize their sin and turn to God. Turn from their sins and to God. Turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. I think this summarizes very nicely what Joel is trying to say here. Second Chronicles Chapter 7. Our response to God because of the judgment that will come upon all those who oppose Him should be like the response that God demanded of Israel in Solomon's day here in Second Chronicles chapter 7. 
Look at verse 14. And My people who are called by My name humble themselves and pray. We should supply if there at the beginning of verse 14. Let me start over here. Sorry about that. Because he's continuing a statement from verse 13 where he says, if I shut up. So let's let's start with verse 14 again. If My people who are called by My name humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. This is a summary of what God has been calling for since the beginning of sin. Since the time that sin entered into the world. If my people would just humble themselves and pray and seek my faith and turn from their wicked ways, then I would hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And this is the refrain that we hear not just in the Old Testament, but we also hear it in the New Testament. That God is looking for people to turn to Him so that He can show His favor to them. God is a merciful God. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And we ought to take advantage of that in a sense by by asking for forgiveness, by repenting of our sins if we have not done that. Verses 15 through 17 of Joel chapter 2. Joel talks about the demand for consecration. Verses 13 and 14, we had the demand for repentance, and now we have a demand for consecration. We see the act of consecration in verse 15. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. The trumpet call in verse 1 was referring to a trumpet call to war. In verse 15, it's a trumpet call to worship. They would also use the trumpet to call people in for worship. And so that's what Joel is saying. It's time to worship God. It's time to turn from our sins and, and, and be right with God. They were to consecrate themselves. Turn back to chapter 1. And this is what Joel had called for after the locust swarm had come. He said, Now that this locust swarm has come, verse 14, consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. He's saying it's time. It's time to turn to God. So this act of consecration was necessary. Verse 16 shows us the urgency of this consecration. Of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 16. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. I say that there's an urgency to this consecration that God was calling for because the law allowed for newlyweds to be exempt from military service. So a bride and a bridegroom were exempt from going out and fighting in battle. But notice in verse 16 it says, Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. There's no exemptions here when it's coming when it comes to worshiping God. It's time to come. And it's even more pronounced with that middle phrase that says, Gather the children and their nursing infants. The law also allowed for a nursing mother and her baby not only to be exempt from, from military service, but from religious service service, religious ceremonies. But God is saying here, through His prophet Joel, gather all the people, not just the brides and the bridegrooms, 
who would normally be exempt, but also the nursing infants and their mothers who would normally have been exempt from, from worship in order to take care of their young. So there is an urgency to the consecration that God calls for. Notice the content of the consecration, verse 17. Let the priests, the Lord's minister, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? The content of the consecration, it it tells us about where the priest stands. You notice he stands at the first part of the verse, Weep between the porch and the altar. This is the normal place for the priest to stand. The altar was where the sacrifices were made. The porch was where God resided. And the priest stood in the middle so that he could, he could mediate between God and man. The place of mediation. And so Joel is telling the priest, go between these two places. It's time to, to speak to God on behalf of the people. And the prayer of the priest at the end of verse 17 is this. He prays for God's mercy. Spray Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. And he also prays for God to uphold his glory. At the end of the verse, he says, why, verse 17, Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? There's no reason for people to deny that God exists or that He is great. So stand up for your name, O God. So we see the importance of not only repentance, but consecration, becoming right with God. Now up until this point, the prophet has in chapter 1 described the recent locust outbreak. And then verses 1-11, through 11, he talks about an even greater condemnation or, or judgment that will come on those who oppose God. Chapter 2, verses 1-11. through 11. Then in verses 12 through 17, he talks about the demand for repentance and consecration, the demand to turn to God. And now, in verses 18 through 27, we're going to see that God responds to his people's cry. That God responds to his people's cry. That he longs for his people to call on him. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 28 through 32, we see the restoration of Israel. In, of God's blessing. And then next week we'll look at the, the judgment on the pagan nations. That'll be all of chapter 3. So, from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, what we're going to look at now is, is the paradise restored. We saw the first 17 verse, verses that the paradise was lost, that, that relationship, that access that, that these people would have had to God is now destroyed because God is destroying them. The second part of the chapter, verses 18 through 32, talks about paradise restored, the merciful response of God to restore his people. Verse 18 says that God is faithful to his covenant. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The day of the Lord for God's people, for you and me, if you are a believer, will not be a time of judgment, it will be a time of blessing. Remember the timetable of the day of the Lord? Remember how I explained that to you last week? It is after the Lord comes back, the, 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 um, the rapture of the church. We will be all raptured. Those who are dead in Christ will arise first. And then we who are alive and remain 
will come up will will not precede those who have fallen asleep, that is who are dead in the graves. So Jesus will come, rapture his church, and then immediately the, the tribulation will begin. And for the next seven years, God will pour out his judgment. That's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Where God will pour out his judgment on those people. And then do you remember what happens immediately after that? Revelation nineteen tells us that it is the battle of Armageddon where God's army wins the battle. And, and after that, Satan, the devil, will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years. And during that thousand year period, that is the time in which we will experience this blessing. Where we who have called on the name of God will for, uh, for a thousand years enjoy Christ's perfect ruling on this earth called the Millennium. And and at the end of the millennium, Satan will be judged finally and all the people of the world will be judged finally and, and cast into an eternal punishment in hell and we will forever share in the glory of God and, and Christ will reign not only as the millennial king but after that the eternal king. Okay, so that, that gives you an idea of the of where we're talking about. So when we're talking about God's restoration of his fellowship with his people, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the millennium. Because we will not be here during the tribulation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We will not be here. We will look at the day of the Lord as a time of blessing, not as a time of judgment. Verses 19 through 22 show us the agricultural restoration Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate, desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. You remember from last time that, that all these things had been taken away because of the locusts in chapter 1. Now God is saying, I'm going to restore these things to you. And this is a picture of what God is going to do to all those people who are His children in the end times. All these things that, that God poured out His judgment upon will now be restored to His people. Verse 20 talks about a stench that will go up. This was very common for uh, when, when locusts would die. They, they tended to go to the seas or the lakes and they would die and then they'd be washed up on shore and the stench would be terrible. There would be thousands, millions of locusts dried up on the land and their their smell would be horrific. And uh, there there was a time not too long ago when when Africa tried to to put pestilence upon a lot of these types of creatures, these locust creatures. And as a result, there was... There was a there was an outbreak of disease, and eight hundred thousand people died as a result of this. But God promises that there will be healing in the land. Look at verse twenty three. 
So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Now, when we think of rain, we think of dreadful days. Days when we have to stay inside. We don't get to see the sun. But for the person in the Old Testament, the sign of rain was a sign of blessing from God. Because rain meant for them that their, their crops would produce. And so they longed for God to bring upon them rain. In chapter 1, we saw that after the locust outbreak happened, there was a drought. And so this, this rain that comes back would restore the garden that was there. Verses 25-27, through 27, God tells us that there will be a physical restoration. A physical restoration. Verse 25, Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. My great army which I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has, dwelt, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. The Lord was going to restore His people he longed for His people to, to bring Him praise. And the amazing thing about these verses, particularly verse 27, is that God will dwell among His people. Look at verse 27. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Just as God chastens those whom He loves, so here the chastening of God has produced a harvest of righteousness and peace and renewed prosperity, renewed worship, and renewed knowledge of God. Now let's turn to the last five verses, verses 28-32. And this is the spiritual restoration that will come in the day of the Lord says, it will come about after this that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out My Spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. The day of the Lord will be a day of salvation. Final salvation, that is, for the people of God. A day of vindication. But it'll it'll be a day of fury and wrath for those people who reject God. First thing I want you to notice in these verses is the pouring out of the Spirit in verses 28 and 29. Now this is an incredible promise for the Jew, Jewish reader. Because in ancient Israel, the free, older, Jewish male stood at the top of the social structure. The ancient prayer helps us to see this. 
they would often pray, Thank you, God, that I was born not a, not a Gentile, not a slave, and not a woman. This was their prayer. Because they felt that God's, God's blessing, and it was in many ways, was, was upon the older male Jew. And what Joel is, is promising here is something that is unheard of. Look what he says there. And it will come about that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And notice who? And on your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And notice, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. This was unheard of. That God was pour out His Spirit on all people? And we see in Acts chapter 2 that there was an element of the Spirit being poured out. Let me have you turn there because this is quoted, this passage here in Joel is quoted in Acts chapter 2 by Peter. Some, believe, some people believe that this is an actual fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. Notice what Joel said, or Peter says here in verse 15, Acts chapter 2. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Let's go back to, to verse 1, and I'll show you what happens here. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So this is the day of Pentecost. The Spirit is being poured out on the people like has never been done before. And then notice the response in verses 12 and 13. And they, that is all the people who are watching, all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're all full of sweet wine. Here's Peter's response, verse 14. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken this was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And he goes on and he continues all the way till the end, verse twenty one, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now on the day of Pentecost, Peter identifies the outpouring of the Spirit with the prophecy of Joel chapter two, verses twenty eight through thirty two. But Peter's application of Joel raises some questions. Because Joel had prophesied of an outpouring of the Spirit that would be all-inclusive, remember? It would include sons and daughters. It would include young and old. It would include slaves and even slave girls. And we have to remember that in this supposed fulfillment in Acts chapter 2, that there were no signs as prophesied by Joel preceding the outpouring of the Spirit. 
Remember, he said that there's going to be some great signs. It will be a great and awesome day of the Lord. And there will be wonders that are displayed in the heavens. There are no signs here in Acts chapter 2. And so we have to keep in mind that Peter was anticipating a soon return of the Lord. He was expecting, like Joel, that the day of the Lord would come quickly, that it would be near. And so when he saw this, he, he must have been thinking that, that the, the Spirit was being poured out. So he reasoned correctly that the Spirit would be poured out in the end times, but Jewish unbelief suspended it from actually taking place. And so the full revelation of Joel's prophecy awaits a future day when God pours out His Spirit in, in, uh, upon His people to all who have called on Him, just as, as Peter had quoted. The pouring out of the Spirit was not fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, but rather it was a preview of what would take place, of what will take place during the day of the Lord, when God pours out His Spirit on all people during the Messianic Kingdom, when Christ reigns as Messiah for those thousand years. Turn back to Joel chapter 2, and we'll look at these last three verses, the, the deliverance that God promises for the remnant. Verse 30 says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The blood would be a result of the war that would take place, of, of the millions and billions of people that would die as a result of not turning to God. The fire and smoke here in verse 31 are referring to, excuse me, verse 30, are referring to a sign of God's blessing. Remember, the fire and smoke led the Israelites out of Egypt during the night. This, In this case, it's going to be a cosmic phenomenon in which God will show His blessing to His people. And following that, He will pour out His Spirit on all those who call on Him. So, verse 11 finishes with who can endure it. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who is it? We said no one. But, but Joel actually responds to that and says, actually, there, there is one exception. Look at verse 32. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, or as Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10, will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who is it that can endure? Can endure? The great and terrible day of the Lord? Those who repent of their sins. Those who turn to Christ. That is our hope. That we have a compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and is, is gracious to all those who call on Him. So our response should be not to worry or to fear of God's judgment because God is faithful to His promise. God is so certain about our future deliverance and dwelling with Him that He has given us a down payment. You know what that down payment is? It is the seal of the Holy Spirit. It is God living within you. The very Spirit of God living within you. 
That is the down payment. God's saying, I can so guarantee that this is you're going to be delivered on that final day that I'm going to give you my spirit. And now you can be sure that when that day comes, that great and terrible day of the Lord, when He enacts judgment on all those opposed to Him, that God will deliver you if you have His Spirit. Do you see the Spirit working in you? Do you display the, the fruits of the Spirit? If so, that is God's down payment for you that you are His child. That is, that is the assurance that you can have that you can call Him your Father. The song that, that has been going through my mind this week as I've been thinking about this passage is on hymn 97 in our hymn books. It's called The Mercies of God. Let me ask you to turn there with me. We'll, we'll read a couple verses of it and then we'll sing it together. Have you experienced the mercies of God? Has God displayed His mercy to you? Have you seen that He is slow to anger and abounding in love? Hymn 97. The mercies of God, what a theme for my song. Oh, I never could number them more. They're more than the stars in the heavenly dome or the sands of the wave-beaten shore. Verse 2. They greet me at morn when I waken from sleep and they gladden my heart at the noon. They follow me on into shades of the night when the day with its labor is done. His goodness and mercy will follow me still even on to the end of the way. I have His sure promise and that cannot fail that His mercy is mine every day. For mercies so great, what return can I make? For mercies so constant and sure. This is our response. I'll love Him. I'll serve Him with all that I have as long as my life shall endure. Let's pray. Lord, that is the prayer of our hearts. And as we are about to sing this to You, as a response to Your great mercy to us, we are amazed that You have called us out of this sin-cursed world, that You have given us a means by which we can turn to You, that we can repent of our sins, that we can ask for Your forgiveness, and that You have promised that whoever calls on Your name will be saved. We thank You that You have done that for us. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not done that, who, who is not sure if they've made that, that decision for themselves, if they have not turned their hearts to You, I pray that You would help them to get it right. Lord, You know that it does not require someone to come down an aisle or to sign a card, but it simply requires, like Joel says, not a, a rending of the garments, but a, a rending of the heart that their hearts would turn to You. Lord, help us to see our need to, to point the lost to You. Once they get to this great and terrible day that You've promised of judgment, it, it will be too late. Lord, please help them to turn to You. 
Help us to share the glory of Your Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to those around us who need to hear it. And Lord, I pray that our focus and our attention would be on the things that You have promised for us, that that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of Your glory and grace. May we live for You because He died for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.